We've got two minutes after, so we're going to go ahead and get started. <clears throat> um, we said it, I said it last time, just so you know, we're not going to meet the week of Christmas or the week after Christmas, right? So the, the 29th and the 22nd, I think, are the two weeks that we'll have off. We'll come back, we'll start at the beginning of the new year, so we will meet this week. So from now, we're meeting until the week of Christmas. No meeting then, no meeting the week after Christmas. Pick back up in the new year, all right? So if anything changes on that, I'll let you know. Um, but as of right now, that's what's going on here. Also, <clears throat> I wanted to talk about, or do a little quick plug, because I got some more of these in. But with all of the stuff going on in the world right now, uh, stuff being a nice word to describe it, there's, there's, a, there's always a sense among Christians of what's going on, what kind of world we live in, what's there's these signs of the end. Is, you know, we've got all these bombings and terrorism, and Middle East and massacres and immigrants and refugees and all this stuff. What do we do? What do we make of it? Uh, one of the resources that, that Disciple Dojo, my ministry, has put together, and I just got some new uh, copies of it in, is a course that I teach. It's called Apocalypse Now? Question mark. What the Bible teaches about the end times. And this is audio CDs. Like this is 10 audio CDs. Each one's over an hour long. So it's, it's you know, hours and hours. But it's basically a walk through what have Christians believed about the end times. And then what does the Bible say? And more importantly, what does it not say about the end times? The goal of this course is to give people a foundation upon which to filter headlines, prophecy experts, theological teachings, sermons, all that kind of stuff. Give them a basis, a foundation upon which they can then engage the world, read scripture, look at headlines, love the neighbors, all of that stuff within a biblical eschatology rather than a fearful or a super political or a partisan or a you know kind of cult-like mentality that some Christians are often prone to slipping into and have been doing so ever since the days of Jesus. So anyway, this the, the CD version, the, the audio streaming, this is either tech savvy, you can you can stream it on my website for free on the podcast link on iTunes or uh, on jamesmith.org. But if you want the audio CD version, these uh, for the whole set's 40 bucks. Uh, let me know, and I've got some more in my car. But this is uh, a very relevant subject right now, given what's going on in the world, and it's one of the main things that my ministry is able to offer people the free version um, as much as possible and, and part of it's through people that are, want the CDs to give to somebody or whatever buying it that kind of helps subsidize so anyway if you want if you have any questions about that ask me afterwards but let's jump into Exodus chapter 34 this is the, is sort of a cliffhanger, not a cliffhanger, actually the week before was a cliffhanger, and in 33 we saw God saying that he was going to forgive the people. So 32, golden calf. The people broke the covenant. They shattered the covenant. They broke the first two commands. Moses smashed the tablets, which was basically the same effect as somebody holding up a contract and ripping it up. That's the effect that that would have had on the people, saying you have voided your ability to be God's covenant people. So then the last chapter, Moses interceded. Talked about Moses going in in his tent of meeting and him having face-to-face -face conversation with God. And one of those conversations we got to listen into in verses 12 uh, through the end of the chapter where he pleads 
on behalf of the people, offering himself as the atonement, or saying, not atonement, basically saying, I'll stand with the people and I'll even accept their punishment uh, if you decide to punish them because I'm, I'm identifying with my people so strongly to plead on their behalf. So Moses does that, and in an act of grace, God says, I, God, God changes his mind, so to speak. He relents from the punishment. He actually, he allows himself to be moved by Moses' persuasion. This is where people's theology starts to get, like, well, what do I do with that? How can God change his mind? We don't know how it works out. The text just says he was going to do this. Moses interceded. He did it. He did something else. There's a relational quality to God that's super important. We've emphasized, we've seen it emphasized throughout Exodus. Before God has anything else, he's relational. So now, uh, in chapter 34 then, God says, I'm going to do what you've asked. I'm going to forgive the people. I'm also going to show you my glory because you've asked for that. And, and, and to, he's going to kind of put his stamp of approval on Moses in a way that will be unmistakable. So, chapter 34. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So he's setting it up. He's saying, all right, we're going we're gonna to do this again. The first time, back way back in chapter 20, uh, 19 and 20, when God was going to make the covenant with the people for the first time, he said, nobody come on the mountain. I'm, I'm going to be inhabiting this in a holy way, and it's going to be holy ground. And my holiness cannot be just approached willy-nilly. It can't be, you can't come to God on your own terms. God sets the terms for who can come to him throughout the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, which is what's so amazing about the New Testament and the idea that we're able to approach God without a mediator. That's what's so life-changing in the New Testament. But at this point, God's ingraining this concept into the people that his holiness is different. And so they're to be set apart from him, from Mount Sinai. This, this covenant ratifying ceremony is going to take place again. God's doing it over again, the same covenant. Chisel out the stone tablets. I'm going to write on them again. I'm going to rewrite this contract. You're getting a second chance. This is huge for the people because they had no, they had no clue. Remember, they had just lived through the plagues of Egypt and God raining down punishment on the mightiest empire in the world. They have been through all of these things of God showing his might. They have no warrant. They have no understanding of, of grace, of Jesus, of forgiveness. They... They are not expecting God's grace, and they are not presuming on God's grace. We have the benefit of hindsight and looking back and saying, of course God's grateful, graceful. Of course he's, he's forgiving and he's loving, blah, blah, blah. That's not the God that they've been able to experience fully yet. They've seen the covenant king God, the mighty suzerain God. They are the vassal, all right? This is what they're expecting. So... Verse 4, Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first one and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded it. He carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there, literally in Hebrew, took his stand there with him and proclaimed his name Yahweh. Or literally, the Lord came down and called on the name Yahweh, is what the Hebrew says. So God is coming down and he's invoking his own name. 
Now, we've mentioned this back when we studied Genesis. Those of you that weren't here may have missed it. You can catch it on the uh, videos if you want to go back and watch. But in the Bible, a name is not just what you're called. Your name is your essence. It's the sum description. It gives a, it gives a particular insight into who you are at your core. So to do something in the name of doesn't just mean, oh, I'm going to do this in so-and-so's name. It is to act in, in continuity with or to act according to the nature of someone. The name is incredibly significant in the Bible. And so now God is going to come down and, and Moses said, show me your glory. So he begins this whole showing of him his glory by invoking his name, his character. His identity. If people say, who is God? What is God's like? This should be the first place we look in the Bible. Because this is the fullest revelation of his name, which is Yahweh. He's introduced it at the beginning of the book when he appeared in the burning bush. And Moses said, who should I tell him to send me? And he says, tell them I am who I am. Yahweh sent you. I am who I am. So now he's going to come down and he's going to say that name again. And he's going to explain what the character of this God is. He's going to explain himself. He's going to proclaim himself, I should say. And this is where, in verse 6, I preach, I teach from the NIV. I'm holding an NIV Bible. I use the NIV. It's a fine translation. There's nothing wrong with it. But no translation is perfect. And the NIV is, does a bad job with this section. It just it, it doesn't translate it well. I'll read it in the NIV. It says, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. There's so many terms in this. This is a packed, this is, uh, Exodus commentators have said, this is the theological center of the book of Exodus. This section, this chapter that we're in, because it's it's after the covenant's been given and after the covenant's been broken, and now God steps back into the scene and reveals Himself not just as the God who brought out of Egypt, not just the God who gave the covenant, but the God who brought out of Egypt, gave the covenant, and forgave the people when the covenant was broken. So this is the height. This is the summit. I said earlier in Exodus when we got to Mount Sinai, that's kind of like the summit of the book. But it's a, it's a Twin Peaks summit because there's, there's the mountaintop summit and then the deep valley of rebellion. And now we're back to the summit again. This is, this is the culmination, the climax of the book right here. And the, there, are, there's, there are a lot of terms in this that you could spend a whole study picking apart. Uh, the one version that gets it right is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It's, it's the Southern Baptist version uh, that came out about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And they translate this verse, I think, a lot better. And so, by the way, if you don't, if you have a smartphone, you should have the U version app. It's free. You can read like every Bible translation ever. You can share. You can do all this really cool stuff. So, uh, get U version. But it says, uh, the, Holman puts it this way, verse six. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh. So first he gets his name right. He doesn't say the Lord. He says, like we're talking about Yahweh, the name of God, God's actual name. Yahweh is a compassionate, and that word compassion, racham, it comes from the same word of womb, like a woman's womb. And it means the, 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 the compassion, the, the inward parts, the, the safety, the, the, just how a mother feels for a child growing in her womb. That's a sense of 
what this word carries with it, these connotations. Yahweh is a compassionate and a gracious God, showing, showing chen, showing grace, showing favor, forgiveness. Slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth. That word NIV translates as love. It's not the word love in Hebrew. It's the word hesed, which means faithful love or loving kindness or steadfastness. It's a covenant term. It's, it's, it means a complete unwavering devotion to a person whom you've pledged your loyalty or your love to. It's a technical term, chesed. It's all throughout the Old Testament and it's translated in different ways throughout the Old Testament English versions. But it's a key term in Hebrew. It means devotion, steadfast devotion, pledge of faithfulness, even to those who don't deserve it. The closest concept we have in Christianity is grace. It's the idea that you don't deserve it, but I'm not abandoning you. That's what chesed means. That's, it's, it, when you ever see steadfast, loving kindness, uh, faithful love, sometimes just love in the Old Testament, a lot of times it's that term. So he maintains, or guard, literally, verse 7, guarding chesed, guarding this faithful love, watching over this faithful love to a thousand or two thousands, and that means generations, or just beyond measure. In Hebrew, there's no bigger number than thousand. Like you can say 10,000, 20,000, but you have to do it by adding up thousands. Thousands kind of like the cap of, if you want to say something's beyond measure, almost. So the idea is that God is compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, rich in faithful love and truth. So he's rich in love and that steadfastness, that chesed, but he's also rich in truth. This term, and NIV translates it as like faithfulness or something, but it's the word for truth. God doesn't put one above the other. Love is always balanced with truth and vice versa. Truth without love is legalism. Love without truth is just vapid sentimentalism. God holds both in his hand because both are his nature. Abounding in faithfulness, steadfast love, abounding in truth as well. And so therefore, Thing go. There we go. <clears throat> Therefore, uh, verse yeah, verse seven. Maintain faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. So God's character, His nature, is forgiving. Three Hebrew terms, and they translate differently in every translation. The first one is avon. Avon means iniquity, depravity, wickedness. Rebellion. That's Avon. The second one is Peshat. It means breaking a law, transgressing, seeing a boundary and stepping over it, willfully breaking. And the third one is the common word for sin, Kata. And that means to, to make a mistake, to veer off the path, to, to act wrongly, to act in a way that's, that's sinful. So there's three terms. Those are the three Hebrew terms for sin. And they're all used in this verse. And God's name is, is comprised of one who forgives all of those. Avon, Peshach, Hatah, he forgives those. But, the next part of the verse, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And literally in Hebrew it says he will not clear away. In other words, God doesn't just say, ah, people will be people, no big deal. He can't do that because he's grace, but he's also truth. So, Instead of that, rather bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity 
upon the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. This is much better than the NIV where it says punishing for the sins of, because it doesn't use those terms. What it says is visiting, literally the term God means to visit. God visits, allows the repercussions, lets the iniquity that the fathers commit, that will affect the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. In the Hebrew culture, third and fourth generations was about the span of a family that would all live together. You would all, you know, your, your grandparents and your great-grandparents, you would all live together in the same village, in the same family. So what this is saying, this verse, is that God's forgiveness extends to the thousands of generations. His forgiveness is what's put first. His forgiveness is what his name is based around. He's a God that wants to forgive. He's not a God sitting there waiting to strike down and then gleefully rejoicing over it. He's not a, quote, Old Testament God. That's by people who, quote, don't read the Old Testament, all right? God is the God of the Old Testament, is the God of the New Testament. He is the God that Jesus reveals fully. The grace of God in the gospel is just as evident in the Old Testament. It's just that we are seeing a longer span of God's dealing with his people, and we're seeing it in a covenant situation, and we're seeing it in an earthly political theocracy that God had established under the Sinai covenant. But in the new covenant, when God's kingdom expands beyond the boundaries of ethnic Israel to include all who call on the name of the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ, as Israel's Messiah, then the covenant in Sinai gets expanded. It gets taken from black and white to technicolor. High definition HD, it gets, it gets um, not replaced. It gets renewed and redefined to a broader audience. So the character of God is still the character of God in both testaments. And at his core, he's a God who forgives avon, pasha, hata. He forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That's the good news. However, it's not just that because he also visits the avon, the iniquity, the rebellion of the fathers on the generations that are with them after afterwards for three or four generations. In other words, the, and this Exodus generation is going to learn this lesson. This generation is going to rebel. In the book of Numbers, they're going to openly rebel, avon. They're going to commit iniquity against Moses. And God's going to say, because of your rebellion, you will die in the desert and your children will wait 40 years before they can enter into the promised land. So there are consequences. It doesn't mean that they're not forgiven. After the golden calf, when Israel repented, they were forgiven. But there was consequences to their behavior that carried on. So in our lives, if we have people in our family, say our father or, great, or, or grandmother or mother or grandfather, if they were alcoholic, if they were a drug addict, if they were abusive, if they were angry all the time, there are consequences that will follow in our lives and will maybe manifest themselves in the lives of our children if we're not careful. How we act will determine how things go in many, many ways for the people that come after us. However, the forgiveness, the spiritual relationship, the, the, the standing before God as his child is not can be forgiven of all of that. In other words, you can be forgiven and there still be consequences your sin. So if you are someone who is an alcoholic or a sex addict, 
you can be forgiven of that immediately. The blood of Jesus washes you from all sin. But the consequences of the choices you've made leading to that sin can have ramifications on you, your children, your children's children, if you are not guarding against them. Now that means if you're an alcoholic, you don't hang around the bars in celebration of your forgiveness. If you're a sex addict, you don't work with prostitutes as, as your ministry, right? It's just common sense. It's just guarding yourself and guarding your family and preventing the iniquity being visited upon the next generation, right? So there's a difference here. And I'd be blurs it by using the word punishing sin in both cases. And it's not the same thing. The sin can be forgiven, but the iniquity, the rebellion, will have ongoing consequences that have to be dealt with even by people who are forgiven in God's eyes. Does that make sense? I want, I want to make sure that's really clear because it's a foundational truth in the New Testament as well. But it's something that's confused and particularly in passages where things aren't translated exactly right. So after he proclaims his name, he says, this is who I am. And by the way, when he says slow to anger, this is a fun lesson when I talk teach people like how to interpret Hebrew Bible, is they're, they're idioms, they're figures of speech. If somebody says, I want a literal Bible, then you know, give me a literal translation. Well, a literal translation of slow to anger is long of nose. It's long of nose is what it literally says. And that is an idiom, that's a figure of speech in Hebrew, which means slow to anger because nose has to do with your anger. We don't know why. There's guesses. Scholars have said maybe it has to do with some kind of animals that snort and flare their nostrils, or maybe it's like looking down your nose rather than jumping in and getting angry. We don't know. It's just an idiom. English is filled with them. Try asking somebody who's learning English as a second language how many idioms and figures of speech we have in, in our language, and it's crazy. But this is just an example. So again, there's no such thing as a literal Bible translation unless it's filled with all of these figures of speech, which won't make sense. But he reveals his name. He reveals his character. He stands, he walks in front of Moses, and he proclaims this. This is the heart of God. This is who God is. This is the Old Testament gospel. This is God's nature. Highlight, underline, circle this section. It's the key to Exodus, the foundation of the book, the pinnacle of it. Moses' response, verse 8, it's the right one. Moses immediately, and NIV leaves this out, but it's, it's quickly or hastily bows down to the ground. At, there it is, at once. Okay, so they say at once. NIV, uh, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. He bowed down and he worshipped. That is the response of God when he reveals his character and his nature, is a lowering of oneself. Bowing down as a way of showing subservience, showing uh, unworthiness in comparison to, it's showing humility. And then he says in verse 9, O Lord, O Yahweh, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let Yahweh go in our midst. Now he says with us, but literally it says let go in our midst among us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, Forgive our wickedness, our sin, and take us as your inheritance, your prized possession, your, your, the thing that is, 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 goes hand in hand with who you are and your name. So he's saying, Moses asks, not for power, not for might, not for prestige. He bows, he worships, and he says, God, go with us. We need you. Without you, none of this matters. It's all a wash. Without you, we're nothing. So that's Moses' request. Even though we're stiff-necked people, which Moses wasn't, 
people work. He identifies with it. Go with us. What's that? Yeah, yeah, stiff neck is that's a literal that's pretty literal. Yeah, stiff of neck. <clears throat> it's an animal. It's an animal idiom. Like a donkey that stiffens its neck when you try to lead it somewhere. Or a dog that doesn't want to walk, like my dog in the morning, if you don't want to walk, and just stiffen his neck and I'm pulling him on the leash. That's the image. So then, we'll, we'll finish this part. Verse 10. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Literally, I am cutting a covenant with you. That's what that means, to make a covenant. You cut an animal and you share it as a meal. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Awesome in, means in its real sense. Fearful, not awesome like, man, the food today was awesome. No, this, this is good food. This isn't awesome food. Awesome food, awesome means fearing. Like when something's awesome, you are overcome with awe. So that's the sense of what God's doing. Uh, everyone will see how awesome is the work that I, Yahweh, will do for you. Verse 11, obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These are the nations promised all the way back in Genesis 15 that God would use Israel to judge for these nations' iniquities. These nations' sinfulness has reached its full measure by the time Israel enters into the promised land. And God is going to use Israel to judge these nations. He's not driving out the nations because he likes Israel better than them. He's not driving out the nations because he only cares about Israel. He's not driving out all the nations that live there. He's only driving out the particular Canaanite peoples that are mentioned in these lists, in this call. He never says drive out the Philistines, for instance. He never says drive out any Egyptians that are in the land. He never says it. It's a specific. Israel is his weapon of judgment. Verse 12, be careful not to, and again, NIV blows it here. It says not to make a treaty with those. But that's not the wording. The wording is be careful not to cut a covenant with those. He's not warning against just a peace treaty. Although he, they wouldn't need that if he's their God and his king. They wouldn't need to make peace treaties. He would be their God. He would lead them. He would give them victory. But that's not what the text is warning. The text is saying, do not make a covenant with these people. Why? Because I'm making a covenant with you now. And you get one covenant, my covenant. Because to make a covenant with the Canaanites, it means that you would ratify this covenant. You would make this agreement with them and their gods. That's how you make covenants in the ancient world. Assyria makes a covenant with Babylon or with uh, Egypt. It's a covenant between the Assyrians and their gods and the Egyptians and their gods. And both parties' gods and both parties are subject to the stipulations of that covenant. And so God is saying, be careful, do not make a covenant with the people when you get into the land. Be careful, do not make a covenant with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you or in your midst. Instead, break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. And again, this is a part where it's, that could be the translation, but a better one is, for Yahweh is jealous of his name. He is a jealous god. God will not tolerate 
other gods in Israel for the same reason that a husband should not tolerate another man with his wife. Jealousy in some instances is a good thing. Jealousy to a faithful covenant is a good thing. It's a good thing if you see your husband is going after another woman to be jealous of your marriage, to be jealous of it. That's a proper form of jealousy. The problem is in the human realm, we get jealous of things that we don't have a right to be jealous of. And that's what scripture addresses in the sin of jealousy. But the actual desiring of faithfulness by people who've entered into a covenant is a good thing and it's the core of part of the core of who God is as well. He is a jealous God. He doesn't want us going after other gods. Why? Because they can't save. They destroy lives. They promise empty promises. They lead down a path of idolatry that leads down a path of immorality that's fullest expression is all of the depravity in the world around us in its various facets. And God doesn't want that for his people. He wants them to remain in covenant with him and with him only because he is the forgiving God and the graceful God and the God who desires fullness for his people. He's also the God who desires you to come back next week and we finish the next part of this chapter. We have to go now. So have a great week, everyone. Have a great Thanksgiving.